High-performing teams have human leadership. Human leadership creates trust, purpose, and belonging at all levels. We've developed three core workshops to elevate your team with human leadership. Find out how to bring human leadership to your workplace at www.wearehumanleaders.com. Welcome to the We Are Human Leaders podcast. I'm Sally Clark, and today my co-host Alexis Zana and I are speaking with Dr. John Chan about a key issue for leaders everywhere right now, burnout prevention. In this conversation, we go deep into some of the startling findings of the 2022 Global Burnout Study and practical tips we can use to shift the needle on burnout starting now. The cadence of this episode is a little different as Dr. Chan and I share an interest and expertise in this topic. We are both co-authors of the 2022 Global Burnout Study Report, which is available now. Dr. John Chan is the Managing Director at Infinite Potential, a non-profit think tank focused on workplace research. John is an industrial and organizational psychologist with more than 20 years of global experience, designing people strategies that transform workplaces to empower individuals to realize their whole potential. John's career has taken him from Silicon Valley startups to New York Stock Exchange and ASX 100 listed companies. He's also become a good friend of mine during our work together on burnout. This conversation is packed with insights for leaders at all levels about burnout. So let's delve in. Thanks so much for joining us today, John. It's great to have you with us at We Are Human Leaders. Now, I know for a fact that you focused on burnout during your PhD, and I understand that your perspective on the root causes of burnout has shifted since that time. So I'd love it if you could share with us a little bit, firstly, how you came to be interested in studying burnout, and also how that shift in perspective on its causes took place. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me. I am really excited to be here and really try and talk about uh, this topic here. So I've been interested in people and their behavior at a pretty early age. It sounds a bit weird, but I remember I was in my chemistry class and I was doing this experiment. And my teacher at the time said, you know, we've been doing this experiment for decades. We've gone through so many years of classes of this and the results are always the same. And exactly around the same time, you know, I was experiencing something with a couple of friends of mine where they were making some pretty bad choices and I knew they knew better than making those choices. So why is that? You know, I had, and that's kind of stuck in my head. Like, I needed to get to the bottom of why are people making decisions that they know better about? And so that kind of set me off on the path of psychology. So that was about year eight or something like that. And so I've been on this journey ever since. And frankly, I don't think I'm any closer to knowing what the answer. (laughs) And so during graduate school, I became really interested in Martin Seligman's work on positive psychology. So more specifically on learned helplessness. Now this Learn helplessness is a term specifying that an organism, a person learning to accept and enduring unpleasant stimuli and unwilling to avoid them, even when they can. So, you know, they just kind of accept this bad stuff happening to them. And this idea that people can be conditioned to think that they have no control over the outcome of a situation that they're in, even when they actually do have the power to help themselves. Now, this was really interesting to me. And this is something that really tied me into 
actually think me with burnout. And when I was kind of starting to think about that positive psych, this was early days in the positive psychology uh, field, and I wanted to validate this theory. So I designed an experiment to see if those with higher rates of learned helplessness was more likely to burn out or not. I thought if I could identify those with learned helplessness, we can kind of select them out of high pressure jobs so they don't burn out. So kind of helping both them uh, not get in that situation and also for organizations to have healthier employees. So my thinking back then was that burnout was caused by the individual and sort of the individual's way of thinking. Now I graduated, I worked in talent management for a lot of global kind of organizations in more specifically in leadership identification and development. So working with some of the best and brightest people out there to kind of help develop them into C-suite positions. And, you know, I worked with a lot of individuals and there's this trend that kept happening where after working with some of these individuals for a few years, you know, I would come in, I'd be like, hey, great news. This role has come up and, you know, this is what we've been working towards and we've got position open for you to, to go into this, you know, much more senior role. And I started getting these responses like, hey, that's great, but I'm not going to take the job. Actually, I'm going to quit because I feel really burnt out. And, you know, one or two of them, I'm like, oh, you know, that's not sure what happened. Maybe it went off kind of thing, but then it kept happening. And these are some of the best and brightest people out there that I've ever worked with. And so, you know, kind of connecting that back to my initial thinking where maybe there was something about this person. That's why they are experiencing burnout. I know that wasn't true in these individuals because I knew them very well. They are you know, really good in terms of all of the work stuff. So what was happening with that? And that's where my mind really started to shift on what actually are the causes for burnout. And so that kind of led me to the road to where we are today. That's really fascinating for me, John, because it sounds like, so to me, it sounds like you started with this concept of learned helplessness being a sort of having some kind of causation to burnout. And then you noticed that these people who were actually really high achievers were also experiencing burnout, which tells me that it's happening at both ends of the achievement spectrum, if you will. So I know that you recently co-authored the global burnout study for a third year in a row. What were the key findings? What do you know now about burnout that you didn't know then? What surprised you from this research? Yeah, we really wanted to do a longitudinal study to see how things are tracking. We know the concept of burnout. It's not new. We've been studying this for probably 50 years or so. But when COVID hit and we, there was a major change in the way that people were working and the entire globe was going through the same situation, which is quite rare that the entire world is going through the same situation. I thought that was a really good time to kind of see, hey, let's, let's pick this back up. Also, I had a lot of extra time because you know, I was kind of locked in our house. But to see how the world was kind of reacting to this. And after three years, we have been seeing some trends that are just continuing to no, year after year, we're seeing the same trends. So the first thing is the rates of burnout. In the three years, the rates of burnout are continuing to climb. So for the last three years, you know, in 2020, when we first started this study, for our participants, around 29% of the participants was feeling burnt out. And that climbed to about 35% last year. And this year, the latest findings that we have from 2022 burnout studies are 38%. So another pretty significant climb in the rate of burnout uh, that's happening. Yeah, absolutely, John. And 
Just before we go any further into the findings here, I think something that would be really helpful for our listeners, and certainly I know the first time that I had Sally explain this to me, for those listening don't know, Sally is also a co-author on the Global Burnout Study with John, which is really exciting to have her so close to this mission as well. Something that I learned is burnout actually isn't as simple as I think people think. I think many of us use this word or overuse this word. And Sal, I might pose this question to you if you wouldn't mind. Could you just for a moment help us understand what the dimensions of burnout are before we sort of move a little bit more into those deeper findings? Absolutely, Lex. So this is also one of the reasons that we do sometimes see some studies reporting burnout rates as high as 70 or 80%. And that's because they're often just directly asking people, do you feel burnt out? And honestly, you know, I think in the last few years, most of us have felt some level of pretty intense stress. But the World Health Organization defined burnout in 2019 as being a syndrome that's caused by chronic workplace stress. So really placing it in the work and the occupational environment. And the three dimensions that we use to measure burnout are exhaustion, cynicism, and reduced professional efficacy. So exhaustion, really, I think we all can pretty much immediately imagine what that is. That's really completely being physically, mentally, and emotionally exhausted. Cynicism speaks to a sense of withdrawal from your job and even from your life more broadly. So starting to become more cynical, more distanced from your work and losing that sense of engagement. And the reduced professional efficacy is really expressed in just not being able to do or produce what you once could as fast. So particularly for those of us who are high achievers, that can be really quite confronting for our identity when we finally sort of have this realization that we are trying to churn out what we were, but we're just not able to do it at the same rate. And that can be quite a confronting experience for people to go through in burnout. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that personal frustration almost exacerbates the exhaustion and exacerbates those other issues to an extent, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I think particularly when we're quite attached to what we're doing, when we've spent you know, a lot of our lives getting high grades and achieving in our studies and then in our career, it can be a very confronting and almost sort of existential feeling of who am I if I can't do what I once could? And what will it take, whether that's more coffee, whether that's less sleep, whether that's ignoring healthy coping mechanisms that I have had to be able to try to keep achieving until ultimately, for some people, we do reach a state of burnout. Mm, So it sounds to me then, and you know, John, based on your journey in this research as well, that burnout isn't something that's caused by the individual. Is that right? It's not something that individuals bring upon themselves. Yeah, that's right. Just from my my personal journey on this, and also lots and lots of uh, decades of studies on burnout and its causes, what they have found is that the symptoms of burnout is caused by the organizational structures and the cultures that the person is working in. So that's why, you know, no matter how good a person, or you know, in terms of resilience, by you know, all of those things, when you they're put into these really high pressured environments, toxic work cultures they're going to burn out no matter what the situation is. Okay, so going back into some of these key findings then, the trend has been that burnout's increasing over the last three years, right? We know that now. What other findings have come out of this study, John? What were some of the key takeaways that organizations really need to be paying attention to at this point? There's a really interesting insight that we found in this year's study where we look at, you know, this question about the hybrid work environment. I think this is something most organizations are struggling with. How do we do this right? You know, we I think that the door is open and the horse is left on 
bringing everybody back to the office for five days a week. That's not going to happen anymore. But also at the same time, we're not going to just not come back to the office. So what is the right balance? How do we make that happen? And so a lot of organizations are you know, trialing different things, but I think some organizations are struggling with what is the right balance. And we wanted to kind of have it a piece of input into that conversation. And so within this year's study, we asked our participants, where do they work what the majority of their time, whether it's at home, do they split time between the office and home, or do they work within the workplace the majority of time? And a really interesting insight that we found was that those who are more likely and experiencing burnout actually work the majority of the time at home rather, and those who are in the office actually had the lowest rates of burnout. And what we've been finding there as well is that when people are in the office, at least 50% of the time, they indicated that they are getting more support from the organization. So simply by being there at the organization, they feel like, uh, you know, they're sort of getting the benefits of being together with other people within the organization and the support that creates versus those who are working over 80% of the time at home indicate a really low rate of organizational support. I just want to say these are correlations and not causation, so there might be other stuff going on, but I mean, that the trend for this data is showing that there are some things that we'll need to kind of talk about in terms of burnout when we talk about that hybrid work environment. Mm. And I think if I can just draw from that as well, that another of our findings was that there's a real shift in demographic in terms of age group this year to the 18 to 24 age group actually being the, has shown the highest rate of burnout. And that has jumped significantly in the last 12 months. And so we're looking at people who are possibly fresh graduates who've come in at entry-level positions. They're actually showing the highest rate of burnout at the moment. And I think this connects to that hybrid work piece because these are potentially people who were hired in a remote environment who shifted from university studies, for example, straight into a, into a corporate environment and have never seen their office until perhaps, you know, the last few months. So their experience probably, you know, they're not seeing humans in person. They maybe have never met some of their colleagues. It means that that makes a lot of sense to me that they're not feeling a strong level of organizational support and potentially, you know, very quickly running into the exhaustion, cynicism, and even reduced efficacy that we are seeing in burnout very early in their careers. Yeah, that is fascinating. And I'll reflect, you know, on my graduate days that I had so much support from the project team around me. I had direct access to my managing director at the time. And I couldn't imagine having you know, finished university, gone into a corporate marketing career, which is what I did, and done that from a home office and sort of not have that support. And I think, you know, what's fascinating about the hybrid work argument is it's such a convoluted argument. There's no easy black or white that office or at home is better. I think what this speaks to is the need for organizations to really look at all of the factors and all of the systems and all the processes that need to change and adjust to actually make sure that employees can transition to flexible work and still have everything they need to thrive in that. And Sally, I know that part of this burnout research that you're most passionate about and most fascinated by is the psychological safety piece. And can you help us sort of unpack that a little bit, Sal, and perhaps maybe explain some of that data to us and also some of the implications around burnout for psychological safety in workplaces? Yeah, absolutely, Lex. So I think for me, you know, 
we focused a lot on those, what you mentioned just now, these organizational courses, like how we work, the number of meetings we have, the way we structure our work and the tools that we use to facilitate interactive, collaborative work environments. I think we can't just focus exclusively on that because we are seeing from the data that a sense of organizational support is really crucial for people to avoid burnout. There's a high negative correlation between organizational support and burnout. And there's also a high negative correlation between psychological safety and all three dimensions of burnout. So while it's really important for us to sort of reevaluate the structures of how we work, as you mentioned, like how can we really make work as in the day-to-day gritty tasks that we have to do as simplified, as easy, as transparent as possible. But how can we also ensure that the way that we treat each other as human beings in the workplace is with dignity, with respect, and creating and fostering that sense of trust and connection and and engagement so that people, irrespective of their locations, are actually feeling supported by their organization. And we describe it in this term of organizational support. And I think it's really important to remember in this context that organizations are people. So this is about how we as people, as leaders, treat ourselves and each other. And that's a really important component of a burnout prevention strategy as well. So systems and structures, yes. And how are we actually behaving towards one another and treating each other in the workplace as well? Both have enormous consequences for burnout prevention. Mm, And you spoke to this piece of employee engagement. And I'd love to ask you, John, around that as well. I know that this was a piece of what you studied in the study this year. Were there any surprising findings or correlations between employee engagement and the incidences of burnout? Yeah, in the study, there was a really strong correlation between the rates of engagement and burnout, as, or sorry, negative correlation. So as engagement levels rise, the levels of burnout does decrease. I want to add a caveat to that because there's, we do know about the dark side of engagement where people become too engaged within their organization. And that's actually a reason why they burn out. You know, you see this a lot when sort of nonprofit organizations or uh, charities where people really buy into and are engaged with the values that they love their organization. Uh, a lot of it is about helping people and they are just so bought into that they actually burn themselves out. So there's sort of this curvilinear kind of relationship uh, with that. But I think for most organizations, they are there's quite a strong focus on engagement. And I think that that's a really good thing as they are focusing on alleviating burnout. That's a fascinating connection there, John, because I think then that does tie a little bit into that personal piece, isn't it? And almost that moral obligation or that connection to how important your role is can actually, perhaps for individuals, and I'm speculating here, cause them to sort of not put the appropriate boundaries in place between their work and sort of life integration as well. What we've heard from these individuals in these organizations, and also you hear a lot from the doctors as well, you know, if they don't do so much work, they almost suffer a moral injury of themselves when they know that if they stayed another hour, they could help another person off something. And by not doing that, they sometimes feel, oh, I'm just being selfish and, and not doing an extra hour of work to help somebody when it's you know actually quite detrimental to that person. But having said that, you know, we talk a lot about the role of the organization and leaders in preventing burnout. This is a perfect sort of example of how leaders do need to step in to make sure that their people aren't burning out. And even for all of the right reasons that they want to keep working, that you know they do need to stop them from doing that. Yeah. So, and I mean, these statistics seem pretty undeniable here, John. And 
you've spoken to these very purpose-driven organizations, you know, people who are out there in not-for-profits really helping people in, in what I'm sure they feel very passionate about. So it doesn't feel necessarily like there's a purpose or a meaning piece missing here. So, you know, why aren't we seeing more profound action from leaders to be preventative around burnout? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think in my opinion, burnout is a very complicated issue, especially when it comes to the solutions for alleviating burnout. So there's no silver bullets or any easy way to resolve this issue. So a lot of leaders have never actually had to deal with this issue in the past. You know, in the past, when somebody felt burned out, I think a lot of times the manager would simply tell them to open the can of toughen up. <laughs> you know, that's pretty much the solution to the burnout back in the days. And to actually complicate things even further, there's a lot of noise out there about burnout, especially in the solutions as well. And right now, I think it's estimated that the wellness industry is around $1.5 trillion with an annual growth of 5 to 10%. So there's a lot of stuff out there. There's a countless apps out there that says they're able to kind of help people with their burnout or their well-being and just a number of things. So you know, we're faced with the really difficult situations. Now, most managers don't really know how to deal with some of these root causes. And if they do, they quickly realize how difficult and complicated these root causes are to fix. And then, you know, and at the same time, there's all these shiny toys that you can get to say that, hey, you're doing something for your people. So, you know, with the whole mix of that, people are doing things and with all of the good intentions of leaders out there, but they might not be doing the right kind of fixes. Now, being a psychologist, I can't help but kind of dig a little bit deeper on why people do or don't do certain things. So what I've seen are some, you know, some psychological barriers that might be holding people back from making real progress. So I'll just kind of quickly kind of mention three. The first is interpersonal risk. And all of us, even our, our most senior leaders, we're all human. And being the first to kind of call for major change and to really rock the boat, which is what you need to kind of fix burnout, you know, that or that that's something that's quite uncomfortable and unrewarding for people. And sometimes that might be quite career limiting. You know, you don't want to be that person causing all those problems uh, there. So there's a lot of hesitation in people taking that interpersonal risk of you know, raising their hand and facing these problems. Uh, the second one is cognitive dissonance. So that is when sort of basically what your brain is thinking is different than kind of what you're doing. And in those cases, a lot of these leaders who are in senior positions today have also gone through some really you know, tough journey on the way up. So if they were to make things easier for you know the next group coming up, there's a lot of cognitive business on why did I work all those hours? Why did I you know, lose my friends and family or didn't get the time to spend with them to get to this role when somebody else can, are doing that, but still having all of those you know, family friend time. So there's a lot of dissonance in there that they just can't. And we, that's when we hear a lot of, well, that's what I had to do as the reason for inaction. And the last one I'll just I'll mention is just the fear of being blamed. Right? We have this thing with, if somebody's trying to solve a complicated issue and it doesn't solve it 100%, they might get blamed, oh, well, this person tried to solve it and obviously it didn't work. So we're never going to do anything about it again. So that, that feeling of being blamed as well. So, you know, a combination of that, there is you know, more uh, to some of this inaction that you now we'll have to 
dig a little deeper on. Yeah, I think there's so much to unpack there, John. But I mean, I've had, so firstly, to the first point around this interpersonal risk, interestingly, I had a conversation just last year with a leader in a health organization. And I mentioned to her, look, there's this research around burnout. My co-director does these fantastic workshops, really helping you dig into some of the reasons why. And she said to me, we can't use the word burnout here, because if we say burnout, then we have to actually address that the way that we structure our organization has to change. And we don't have the time for that. So I just wanted to point to that because I think there is, you know, I I feel for leaders in those positions, particularly middle management, where they've got to deal with directives coming down onto them and also manage the staff, you know, at the grassroots, really sort of, I guess, copying the outcomes of that. And the next thing I wanted to dive into, and I feel I can't move past this without asking Sally about this question. And this is the cognitive dissonance piece. And there are without a doubt, certain industries where this idea of almost like these rite of passage punishments, if you will, are part of it. You know, we unfortunately, we see it in in medicine. We had a conversation with an incredible doctor earlier this year who spoke about the mental health incidences as a doctor and that rite of passage there. Now, Sally, you're a former finance lawyer. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like going into the law industry You've obviously experienced burnout on a personal level yourself. Was this a sort of process, this kind of rite of passage, you have to earn your place in this industry? Was that something that you experienced? And do you believe that that contributed to your personal burnout? Yeah, great question, Lex. And I'm really, I think it's a really important one because I think there's, while law and finance industry are certainly, I think, particularly prominent in having these kind of rites of passages, I think there's actually quite a lot of people who, and a lot of fields in which, there is this sense of you just have to do a hard slog. You have to, it is expected of you that you will sacrifice all other aspects of your life for the first sort of 10 to 15 years of your career. I think particularly in areas such as law, and again, I'm just speaking from my personal experience, but because there is that sort of partnership track. So if you want to progress in your legal career, there is a lot of, it's a very competitive environment. That competitive environment is heightened by the partners. They really kind of, in my experience, would like leverage that to extract more from employees because that's just, this is the path that you take. And if you're not, if you can't cut it, that's on you. So I really do did get that sense of, I think that would be a very difficult transition in some ways for the legal industry to go through because everyone who is at that senior level has had to make all kinds of sacrifices. And I think then shifting to an environment in which people are actually allowed to breathe and have healthy, balanced lives, perhaps working, you know, 40 hours a week as opposed to the you know, 60 or 70 that we often see, certainly in those kind of top firms, that's going to be quite a difficult, I think, a challenging transition. It will take some real courage on the part of those leaders to put aside their own interests, to understand, I guess, first that cognitive dissonance that they're experiencing, which John spoke to, and to have the courage, and I think, and the compassion to say, that happened to me, but that doesn't mean it needs to happen to the next generation. It is an interesting thing, isn't it? When in my view, the reason we do this work is so that the next generation don't have to have the experiences that we've had. That's what I hope for the world. But it is interesting how some of us cling to this need to earn something and that, you know, earn your place. And that comes from this, I guess, societal construct of what productivity and what worth really looks like. And I mean, we can spend all day unpacking that. So we'll save that for another conversation. (laughs) (laughs) But John, I'd like to go back to you here and just hear your thoughts. You know, what do you really feel at this point it's going to take to end burnout for good? Yeah, that's a big question. question. (laughs) Yeah, it's a big question. Like I mentioned earlier, there's definitely not going to be one thing that's going to fix everything. And also, I think burnout, it's a little bit tricky. Burnout, I think, will adapt 
you know, as we kind of fix a couple of things here and there, it will adapt to something else as well. So we always have to keep at the thinking of ways to kind of solve this issue. But I think at the heart of that, there's, I think, two things I would say. Like the first thing is really at the end of the day, we need to express, you know, and kind of look at individuals within organizations as people. So they're not just a resource that you can use and that you can make do work and you know you kind of count. So every person I resource I have, this is how much I can build from them. Like we really need to start seeing and caring for people as individuals and as people. And you know, really show them that the well-being and that their person really matters and that it matters over for the work that they're doing. And and this is something that I think will be a major shift in organizations, especially in corporates where that is just not how things work. And you know, make, the organization really needs to make it clear that those individuals that are working there really matters and they value your work. I think the bigger kind of scope of things is that we're going to need a momentum to really shift the dial on this and get people to pay attention to how the importance of alleviating and eating burnout and you know, all of the societal good that it will do so not just good for the individual and not even just good for the organization, but for society. When you have people who are energized, when people are, you know, getting invigorated at work rather than like getting burnt out and just all drained at work, there will be more that you can get out of them and they will produce and they'll do better for society. So we got to get that collective momentum going. And I think that's the way that we're going to be able to kind of really tackle burnout. I love that, John. And if I can just also jump in, Alexis, and add, I think to both of those points, a really key component is listening to what people are asking for. And I'd actually love if, John, if you could explain, you know, one of the questions that we asked in the study this year sort of around what's keeping people with their current employer and what they're looking for from if they were potentially the shift, because this is such a topical, you know, aspect of the work environment at the moment. And I think that the findings were quite revealing. And I think it's so important for leaders to be listening to what people are actually asking for. Can you walk us through those? Yeah, sure. So this year, we really wanted to understand what's keeping people, especially to see if there's a difference between those who are burnt out and those who are not in why they're staying or why they're going to another organization. So in terms of why they're staying at their organization, the sort of top reason people have stated that they're staying is that it's all for flexible working arrangements. That is the number one reason people are staying and we know from research from uh, job boards and job sites that flexibility is the number one search word for uh, within these job boards. So that is a really important thing to kind of keep and retain people. Now, when it comes to attraction, this is a very interesting piece of finding that we have. So across the board, no matter what age group, what you know, any all of the demographics, age, gender, what role you're in, the number one attraction factor for people, they're looking for increased compensation. So about pay and benefits. But this is quite contrary to just years of study on why people leave. Generally, pay, you know, it might make it in the top five, but generally not the main reason why people would leave and go to another organization. Generally, it's, you know, I'm going, I'm leaving my bad manager for a better leader or you know, things like that. Pay is generally not. But this year, across the board, increased compensation is the top one. And you know, I think there are some intersectionalities with what's going on globally with you know, increased inflation and also stagnant wages for the last few years. That, yeah, this actually overrides some of the other things that people are looking for. It's such an interesting finding. And I think it really speaks to how in this 
sort of very challenging environment that we're all existing in as leaders, as human beings, to be quite flexible in also how we listen to what people are looking for and not just assuming that that things, what goes this year is actually going to be the same next year, because I wouldn't be surprised if in 2023, our findings are substantially different again. And so just as a final kind of question, John, I would love to hear from you sort of selfishly. (laughs) If you were going to give leaders who are listening one piece of advice for a step that they can take, you know, today, tomorrow, to take that first step towards preventing burnout in their team or in their organization, what would that step or maybe a couple of steps be? A couple of things I would recommend. The first thing actually is what we just talked about. Ensure your people are properly compensated, right? especially for those in more junior roles. You know, if they are having financial stressors, that's going to override anything you're trying to do in the workplace. You know, if they're not sure they're going to be able to have enough to pay for rent or put food on the table, it doesn't matter what you're doing at work. That is going to be the number one stressor on their mind. Another thing I would suggest is really to have open and honest conversations about what the stressors are within the organization. And more importantly, be prepared to eradicate some of these outdated indicators on you know, how we create value, right? Like, so for example, the number of hours or days in the office or when a person is on, how many hours a person is online. Traditionally, those might be ways we are evaluated for our performance. Maybe be open to talk about new ways of evaluating what performance looks like. Because that's always been, no, that's always a major stressor for people. I think the last one, and Alex, you kind of touched on this a little bit, and which is kind of review how reward is distributed. (laughs) You know, uh, the way that it's always been done before, it's not working today. And also within this hybrid work environment, how reward like bonuses, and it's not just sort of pay. So for example, the more interesting assignments, you know, how does that get distributed? Does it require me to be in the office so I can sit next to my manager? So when they get it, I'm the first person that they talk to and give those interesting assignments? Or is there better ways to organize how work is done? Yeah, I think those would be three top ones that I would recommend for leaders. I think there's so much in that, John, and thank you so much. So again, to recap on that, the first one is, and it sounds pretty simple, make sure your people are compensated enough to live the life they need to live in a very stressful modern world. The second one is evaluate what productivity means to your group. And I love this one because I think you're so right. For a long time, we've said your worth is X amount of dollars an hour and you're expected to do eight hours per day for a 40-hour week. Why? If we can extract value from people in a more time-productive and time-efficient way, why do we need to adhere to this structure? And the last one that I heard you say there, John, which is the reward distribution and that this doesn't have to be a monetary thing. This could be reward in getting to work with more exciting clients or in a more collaborative way or, you know, getting to work on a project and be mentored by someone in the organization and looking at the other ways in which people are intrinsically motivated, you know, by growth, by challenge and looking at how we can reward people through that. I think there's three really key things that every organization and every leader can walk away with and start reflecting on right away. And to that end, John, thank you so much for being with us on We Are Human Leaders today. And thank you both John and Sally for this incredible global burnout study that is about to be published 
for the world to both learn from and hopefully take away some really potent and important data around how we need to start shifting the way that we lead organizations. So thank you, John. And thank you, Sally, for being with us here today. Thank you both. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for joining us for our conversation with Dr. John Chan. Having been through a debilitating burnout myself, it's so important to shed light on meaningful ways we can prevent burnout from occurring. I especially love those three practical tips John shared. My sense is that embodying human leadership is a powerful approach to preventing burnout. You can learn more about John and download the study at www.infinite-potential.com.au. If you want to be part of a movement of leaders who envision a world where humans, business and society can thrive through work, join us at www.wearehumanleaders.com. See you next time.